I think a good documentary is like a transparent lens onto something. I still really am more interested in creating a space for the viewer to experience something he or she would otherwise not experience, as opposed to making a film that you're thinking about the film the whole time. Hello and welcome to Farm On, the podcast where I get to speak with agriculturists, artists, and activists on the front lines of the food movement. I'm Joe Phillips. Today's conversation is with Laura Dunn. Laura is a filmmaker based in Austin, Texas, and uh, she directed a documentary called The Unforeseen, as well as a more recent documentary, which is the focus of our conversation. It's called Look and See, A Portrait of Wendell Berry. The film is available on Netflix, and I really can't recommend it enough. Um, I feel like Laura Dunn and Wendell Berry have a similar approach to their work in that they are not putting themselves out there as like a personality to shine brighter than the content of their work itself. Um, But really they're they're trying to capture the essence of the, the, the experience of what it is they're focusing on. And so Look and See isn't really a biopic with a message, but it's capturing the essence of a person. In this case, a real giant of the written word, someone who is as elusive as he is influential. So um, in this chat, you're going to hear me try and fail a couple times to persuade Laura to get her two executive producers, uh, Terrence Malick and Robert Redford, to come on the show. You'll also hear some street noise, some chirping birds, and a chatty toddler in the background. Uh, Laura conducted this phone conversation while walking her two-year-old to sleep um, around her neighborhood. So, But you're also going to hear the conviction of an artist who is using her chosen medium, film, to ask essential questions about the nature of life as we experience it and all the contradictions and vulnerability that comes from such an inquisition. Laura certainly embodies a notable quote by Barry that goes, When we are making our art, we are also making our lives, and I'm sure the reverse is equally true. I really enjoyed chatting with Laura Dunn, and I really hope you enjoy hearing it, and certainly go out and watch the film as soon as you can. Here's Laura. Six boys. Seven-year-old twins, four-year-old, and a two-year-old. That is quite a genetic run you got there. What is (laughs) in the water? I don't know. I talked to my husband. But he, but you know, it's just like nonstop. It's just nonstop. Wow. Yeah, I I mean, you've been super patient to find a time to squeeze this in, but I thought you only had three kids. So still, even with three, I thought you were like superhuman because I have I have one little toddler boy and that's that's plenty. Uh, How old is he? Two and a half. Okay, two and a half. That's yeah. That's my little guy's birthday. He's um born in August, October. So I bet they're about the same. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Well, um, so, um, you know, just do your mom thing. I, I know how it goes. He's going to be asking for things. So, <laughs> I think he'll fall asleep. But okay. I always tell people, you know, there's this that beautiful. Um, I think that beautiful part in. 
<laughs> Sorry, trying to get him settled. But oh, no that problem. beautiful part of um, in the beginning of Look and See where Wendell is. When I say beautiful, I'm. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll save it. Okay, you know where he he quotes. He's writing the eulogy for James Baker Hall. Yeah, but he's talking about art and life, mm-hmm. and I think that's like you know that gives me so much encouragement because Wendell always said he saw he saw the interruptions as interruptions. And then later he came to realize the interruptions are the work. That's it. That's it. And this art and life interrupting art, I think it's a really important reminder. So whenever, even if I'm like, you know, at Sundance Film Festival with a baby in my pouch, I try not to be self-conscious about it and remind myself that it's like, this is kind of embodying the message, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think his quote in the film, I wrote it down was, uh, when we are making our art, we are also making our lives. And I'm sure the the reverse is equally true. Um, I love that so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also I think it's important to, you know, think about the rest of the developing world, you know, the developing world mm-hmm. carry their babies with them everywhere. And it's not this uh, <laughs> thing that you check out and go to, go to work. So I think, I know. aren't we kind of privileged in that way that we, we even have the option to like compartmentalize those two, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, well I compartmentalize is a good word. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, so what's, so have you been homeschooling your kids from the very beginning? Was that a decision that you made before you had kids? Or? Well, it's kind of been a work in progress. Um, I remember when my oldest was two, mm-hmm. I was going to homeschooling meetings. And my husband and I were talking about this last night. It, even though that was a major departure from anything I was raised with, mm-hmm. I just intuitively w- was interested in it. Um, then we kind of went through a circuitous route to get back to homeschooling. Mm-hmm. We, cause we ended up having so many kids so fast and I was working the whole time. Wow. So we ended up at a part-time school. Um, it was like a, it's called a university model school where they would go to school two days a week and then I would homeschool the other days. Mm, okay. And, um, that was really neat because, um, you know, I learned a lot through that process. So yeah. we did that for about four years, four years. That's and neat. Then yeah, and then we've been homeschooling for the past few years, hmm. and um, this is really the first year I've had all of them home, though. Yeah, that's, and, a, lot um, of, that's a lot of boys. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's hard. <laughs> I can't but, imagine. You know, we were kind of we were kind of trying it this year, having them all home. Just one thing: if you have a couple home, uh, and a couple at a part-time school, and another at a preschool, you can kind of get space. But you have them all home. It's different, and I mean, we kind of looked at it as a Let's, we look at it as an ideal, but yeah. like, could I actually do it? <laughs> you know? Oh my God. And, um, we just recently came back to the, you know, we're really convicted that this is the right thing. And I say this because, uh, we were reminded when we were in Kentucky filming for mm-hmm. look and see, we were so moved by the people we met there. And, yeah. um, and was your husband on so set moved. too? When you say we, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. What's his role yeah, in the, in the crew? Well, he's a producer, so he's Jeff Sewell. Oh, oh so he's that's credited okay, Jeff Co-director. Wow. He ended up, I made him take that credit because he was on that. He was always either sometimes assistant camera, sometimes camera, wow. sometimes producer. You know, yeah. he was usually like a four-person crew, so we're yeah. all wearing many hats. Sure, um, sure, sure. And then he did all the um, visual design, so he edits the prologue oh, for the wow. film, and he's 
he designed um, with Wesley Bates all the wood engravings and those are so um, amazing. Kind of the whole, they're so beautiful. They're beautiful. So did your husband yes, do the yes. animation of those or like the? Yes, he did. Wow, uh-huh. wow, he's a talented yeah. guy. He's so, a super talented guy. I'll tell him you said that. He's, He's a very much a designer, you know. Well, um, the film—I mean, the film so. flows in and out of the, you know, talking head footage, but also these montages of imagery that you shot. But then, like you said, the woodcuts and the, I guess, uh, text cards kind of—it uh, mm-hmm. feels like you're just kind of rambling through a story, like a little mm-hmm. um, kind of almost a fairy tale type story with the narration <clears throat> that kind of drifts over the top and Wendell Berry has that ability right to kind of yeah. wax poetically on even the the most kind of uh how do you want to say it like down to earth concepts right yeah definitely well I'll I want to I would address that because it's very deliberate but the to finish my other train of thought real quick yeah is that one of the things all these people in Kentucky would always say to us, they would say, it's a hard life, but it's a good life. Yeah. And that is what I think has been the one thing I might take away from all of our experience in Kentucky working on that film, because it's very much the ethic of Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't make choices just based on what's easy. Mm-hmm. You base, make choices based on what's right. And you set those principles in your mind and you just work towards them. And I think he's just such an example of that, you know, and so many of the people there are too. Mm-hmm. So I think in our little world of, well, can we homeschool? It's the ideal. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. And I would say to people lately, I've been saying to other people, it's like, we're doing it because we want to. Right. And it's hard, but it's good, you know? Like so you it said, it's... encouragement. Yeah, and like, it's that intentional life, right? Not this yeah, uh, yeah. life of convenience where you just kind of, or maybe not convenience, but opportunity, right? Like mm-hmm. seeing an opportunity and, oh, we're going to you know, take that job and whatever it takes, we're going to make the job work and the kids are going to not see us or whatever. But it sounds like you're talking mm-hmm. about intention. Yeah. And principle, mm-hmm. you know, principles. I think Wendell talks about principles a lot. He does a lot. And so when did you discover, I feel like everybody's got their, uh, when I discovered Wendell Berry kind of moment, you know, because it is kind of like this, uh, like you, you discover a treasure trove. I think Steve in the film. Yeah. The farmer Steve uh, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Smith, or yeah, Steve Smith. Mm-hmm. He discovers him late in life, and it's like this: like you just realize that somebody else has already written the blueprint or something, you know? Um, yeah. So, what was your uh, discovery like of his work? You know, people have asked me that. I mean, I just remember reading poetry, mm-hmm. um, mainly his poetry and some nonfiction, probably back in high school. Mm-hmm. My mom is a she works with corn. She's a maize geneticist and she's sort of I my mm-hmm. teacher. She made me become, cause she taught me a lot of environmental stuff early on. But mm-hmm. I think I was just sensitized, mm-hmm. but it was when I was working on my last teacher, the unforeseen with Terrence Malick mm-hmm. and Terrence Malick wanted me to get some voices to make the Austin story relevant in a larger frame. Right. And so he gave me some names of authors to look at and Wendell Ray was one of them. Nice. So I revisited Wendell then and uh, you know really again mostly fiction mostly nonfiction and poetry it was one of his poems that um, I just thought really beautifully inspired me when working on the unforeseen so I wrote to Wendell then and asked him if I could come and visit with him and record him reading that poem Mm -hmm. um, and use it in the film and Mm -hmm. he 
graciously agreed. And so that was in 2004. And were you still um, in, in um, film school when you started making The Unforeseen or had you been out of school for a while? I had just gotten out of film school. So I graduated film school and then it was about five months later. Was it Yale? On the Yale film school? I went school? to Yale undergrad. Okay. Um, I did undergrad at Yale and I did film school at UT Austin. Okay. And you live in Austin now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I have a good friend who runs a cool nonprofit called Pease, P-E-A-S, Pease. And they do mm-hmm. uh, they do outreach to schools, uh, school gardening Neat. and farm to table stuff. Yeah. Wonderful people. It's yeah. Really, uh, it's Neat. really great. Lauren, she's my friend down there. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, uh, and... So how did your relationship with Terrence Malick come along? I mean, he's uh he's done some pretty amazing films and it's kind of a yeah. kind of a name out there, right? So was that oh, yeah, a that connection was through school? No, um I was I graduated from film school. I was very interested in um ecological issues, but looking at um the ecological foundations of other issues. In other words, not just telling environmental mm-hmm. stories, but mm-hmm. I was interested in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and mm. I wanted to look at how water um, mm. kind of uh, flowed under mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all of the uh, surface conflict. Mm-hmm. And so I had gotten Fulbright. I was going to go to Israel. I was started the Middle Eastern Studies Department, getting a master's here at UT. And um, it was very violent that year. The woman who was organizing my studies in Jerusalem was killed in a bombing. And so I just pressed pause and said, you know what, (laughs) I'm going to wait. And in that period of waiting, I volunteered for the local Save Our Springs Alliance. I felt like I was that typical student living in a place, but Mm -hmm. not engaged in that place. And Mm so I volunteered for that, the local kind of water organization and said, you know, could I do some PSAs? Could I help you with anything? Yeah. And uh, they they said, well, actually, um, Terry says Malik's seen your work, and he wants you to do a feature film. Oh, and wow. so I'm, I met with him, and um, wow. he was really a very, um, you know, he was my favorite narrative filmmaker. I mean, yeah. I think the way that <laughs> What he, an honor, right? He, yeah, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, the two big things for me were, you know, he... Nature is a full-blown character in his films. Yeah. It's not just a background. It's a full-blown character. Mm-hmm. And that was very moving to me. And I think also he really is looking at spiritual questions mm-hmm. and how those animate everything else. And For so sure. I was very interested in, the, you know, man and nature, the relationship between man and nature and mm-hmm. what that reflects about us spiritually. And, um, and he really was the master of that. So and is that why it was called The Seer? And the film was called The Seer originally, instead of the um, Look and See. It was that kind of that religious. I mean, it does have a much more of an old time uh, religion quality to it. Kind of prophet. Well, yeah. It wasn't meant as a religious thing. It wasn't mm-hmm. really meant as a religious thing as much as it was. We were trying to have a title that would explain um, the point of view. You know, um, instead of filming Wendell um, mm-hmm. the way, because Wendell didn't want to be filmed, I saw the film as a point of view film that really you're looking at his eyes you're looking through his eyes out at his world Mm -hmm. and seeing what he sees so we were trying to come up with something that would explain that because Mm -hmm. that was a question so many people had Mm -hmm. and the seer you know he's often been called a prophet of rural america Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. that's kind of where that came from it wasn't meant you know he is a christian and Mm -hmm. you know all of that so it works with that but it wasn't meant as kind of a religious statement as much as it was 
kind of practical, trying to explain the point of view. And where do you? We ca- changed the title yeah. because he 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 asked us to. Oh really? <laughs> he didn't like the title. Oh. Yeah, he didn't like the title because of yeah. that connotation. <laughs> like it was a little bit too yeah. prophetic or something. Too much. Yes. Uh. He wrote me a letter and said that uh, it gave him more credit than he deserved, or he knew what to do with, or he oh, could deal with something like that. And uh, he didn't directly ask us. It's that his wife told us he didn't like the title. And uh, so then we changed it and I wrote to him and he wrote me back. And it sounds like Tanya Berry was kind of, <laughs> Tanya Berry was kind of your, um, your, uh, foot in the door, I guess, or something like the way oh, that yeah. she was oh, more yeah. open-minded to it. Oh yeah. She, yeah. she asked me to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, asked, I wrote to Wendell saying, the reason why I wanted to do this film is because when I toured the Unforeseen, mm-hmm. um, and I had Wendell's voice in there and I had him reading his poem, I mean, we've played that film all over the place, and mm-hmm. I could not believe how few people knew of Wendell Berry. It was right. really surprising. Somebody says in the so film, you either love him and you yeah. read him religiously. I mean, I can't find another yeah. term for it. Or you, you're just like, mm-hmm. what? Who? And he got a yeah. what you, he got a Medal of Honor from Obama. Uh, yeah, Congressional Medal of Honor, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's had all the highest, I mean, everything pretty much except the Nobel Prize, and I wouldn't right. be surprised if that happens at some point. So yeah, right. it was really surprising to me, and I and Robert Redford liked the Unforeseen and asked me what I went to next, and I told him I was interested in this, and Redford mm-hmm. was also very, um, very influenced by Wendell back in the seventies when the Unsolved American okay. came out. Okay, so, so Robert Redford he was, was he? On board. Does he have Texas connections? Was he interested in the Unforeseen yes. for that reason? Yes, he oh, okay. um, learned some in Barton Springs, and mm. he, um, he, his mother's whole family is from. San Marcos, and he spent all his childhood summers in the Texas Hill Country. So that's where he Fantastic. credits that as a way to kind of learn to love nature. And Man. he and Carrie were friends, and so he got involved with the Unforeseen in that way. And he's in the Unforeseen. He's interviewed in the film. Sure. So, and, um, mm-hmm. so you know, this, uh, I'm sure he still wants to keep supporting your work. So really, I think the best way to do that would be to uh, talk to Robert Redford or Terrence Malick and have him call my uh, leave a voicemail and I'll I'll put it on the uh, podcast. I do that sometimes. Yeah, know? right. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it really, <laughs> really put their voice to it. You know, um, yeah. we'll work on that later. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's interesting because I feel like Tanya Berry she she quotes um, Gary Snyder in the film, which I thought was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like Wendell, so much of Wendell Berry's poetry, it, he does touch on all of the, his religious faith, but I feel like it, it's expansive into a much larger spiritual domain. And I just wonder where that connects with you on a personal level. Like what's your, what's your life like with uh, the spiritual or the church or, you know, where are you at now? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian, and mm-hmm. we go to a Presbyterian church, and I was raised by Southern Methodist. Mm-hmm. My husband was raised by Southern Baptists, and I think it's, you know, interwoven into my whole history and heritage, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that these days, and one of the reasons why I think Wendell is such an important voice is because these days, you know, religion is so polarizing, mm-hmm. it's so misunderstood, it's... Mm-hmm so politicized in ways that I think misconstrue Mm -hmm. kind of the essential teachings of Christian faith, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that Wendell transcends a lot of that. Um, I don't think he transcends it by being ecumenical or Unitarian. 
mm-hmm. don't know the depths of his theology. I'll tell you, he was raised a Southern Baptist, right. um, you know, but he but he wrote recently and made a lot of Southern Baptist ministers mad when oh, really? he defended gay marriage. Gay marriage, but then oh. he he, def- he but then he offends the kind of E.O. Wilson people of the world because he um, he also defends life as opposed to mm. sort of pro-choice stuff. So he mm-hmm. he is not someone who is going to fit. Hmm. deliberately into any particular political political he's not going to be pigeonholed into one political platform yeah. he's read the bible a few times he can quote scripture mm-hmm. very easily mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. they attend port royal baptist church and tanya plays the organ mm-hmm. um you know he'll also talk about how he's a ground up christian hmm. <laughs> and uh he's not from so the ground up man. or like ground up like coffee yeah <laughs> really if you're interested in it he he wrote some really good um he wrote some really good stuff i'm trying to remember the um um, i'm trying to remember the title there's a book called that he wrote a essay it's called it starts with sex sex the economy Hmm. something else and it has if you want to email me later i can send it to you but he wrote a beautiful article um about the christian gospels and Hmm. it's pretty deep theology Hmm. um and it's really beautiful and uh but he talks about like he's not kind of a a church man as much as he is Mm um you know other expressions of faith so i think his one of the reasons why i think he's so important Mm -hmm. is because he um his art really transcends all the particulars. Mm-hmm. He is an environmentalist unabashedly, mm-hmm. but he's also a Christian. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, as a Christian, often you feel like you're in no man's land if you care about the environment. Right. You know, it's not right. politically kind of where things are. And so I think he's an important voice. And, the, and for me, it's like, I'm more interested in bringing new people into the discourse right. of trying to protect creation or the environment, whatever you're most comfortable with calling it mm-hmm. and you know i think wendell creates a lot of common ground there with his writing and he, his poetry and his his artistic way of seeing things you know it transcends some of those and i think it gets back at kind of some of the essentials of christian faith as opposed to how people have right 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 old, old school else. christian as in uh help those less fortunate than you and uh you know the meek will, shall inherit the earth and the all that old testament kind of those values, right? Sure. And there's a lot of good stuff there. There's a lot of good stuff. (laughs) Well, and it's just occurring to me as you talk about his, um, faith and, and just the fact that he doesn't play the media game, you know, that it kind of keeps him insulated from the, I don't know, the kind of hot button debates, like as in, you know, in terms of his, uh, pro life stance or whatever, all that kind of stuff that could kind of, I don't know, distract from his actual work. And it's, mm-hmm. I just feel like it shows so much integrity that he turns down offers for New York Times pieces or doesn't want to show up on film. And, and that's why you have the uh, audio interviews with him in the film. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like that's so rare. I mean, what other examples do we even have in contemporary culture of uh, writers, you know, that... Uh, are so prolific, but also don't mm-hmm. kind of haven't bought into the Twitter kind of generation or something. 
or not even Twitter, just like making public appearances, you know, (laughs) it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Well, he does a lot of public appearances. He's not so much doing it anymore because mm-hmm. he'll say he's too old, he's too deaf, and he's too busy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so he's busy, you know, um, kind of living his life right now. But but he does a lot of public appearances. He's just really interested in the smaller things, you know. Mm-hmm. He'll he might turn down some something big and fancy, and you know, mm-hmm. and and then instead appear at a small college in rural Tennessee. Oh, cool. So he should Um, say yes to the podcast then later on, once you make the connection. What's that? Then he'll say yes to my podcast, right? (laughs) I don't know about that. He's not really doing interviews anymore right now. He's becoming really guarded with his time, but um, (laughs) but I'm saying that he... He's not interested in kind of the, the, the fluff right. as he perceives it. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, he preserves his time. I think that, and, you know, in terms of media, he's just not interested in screens of any kind, right. which is big thing. So, yeah, um, he thinks that, you know, they deaden the imagination. He doesn't like how dominant they've become. And, um, oh, it's so crazy, he's more, right? He's more inclined. Yeah, it is. I yeah. mean, he's, he's a guy who's so, using uh, horses, you know, quarter horses or whatever to pull his plows so i mean mm-hmm. i guess he probably can there, I, I can only find one article that was trying to write some sort of criticism about his work and um they don't come out and call him a luddite or anything like that but mm-hmm. they kind of the article tries to paint him as being sort of not able to connect to the modern world or to the modern reader or whatever that that I, I don't exactly know what the gist of it is, but I'm going to edit this flub out. But basically, if I can quote, there's a probably little red article by Christianity Today saying that Barry mm-hmm. sometimes seems to be writing polemics meant for a world that barely exists, which I think is true. Rooting in place mm-hmm. and community and uh, rooting in place and community and limits look very different for 21st century urbanites who are lawyers and IT professionals than it does for farmer poets in Henry County, which is also true without probing mm-hmm. the, without probing the edges of his arguments and trying to work them into the broader globalized context. Those who read him limit the possibilities of what he's saying. And then she goes on to say, he also needs interpreters. What do you think of that criticism? I, it doesn't resonate with my experience. I mean, yeah. I'm not a farmer. Yeah. You know, I'm a filmmaker, which is as far from being a Luddite farmer, you know, I'm right. using a lot of technology. I live in Austin. I, yeah. you know, um, so, and yet I think that his, his work has permeated my whole psyche and I'm so grateful mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. So I think his message of, of living a principled good life, of being a steward of your place, of knowing where you are, mm-hmm. um, can apply to anybody anywhere. So I don't see it as uh, something of the past. And, and I think if you, you know, if you read his essays, his, his, his arguments about agriculture um, are as relevant today as they were when he wrote them in the seventies, they may be more relevant. I think um, they definitely so, have more impact now as far as the, the, the uh, consequences of not taking action on it. Right. I think people are starting yeah, to see yeah. that, Oh wow. We're actually seeing the results of what he was talking about. Um, but I think too, like, um, I don't know in the film, he talks a lot about the frame and Mm -hmm. having that, having that limited perspective as a writer himself, 
and kind of the power, I guess, of, of the limits of it. Um, but I would, I would agree that this is a pretty, pretty lazy criticism because those who read them, it's not like they're limited by the possibilities of what he's saying. Um, so it's an interesting, I'm not really buying it either, but anyway, talk about that, like that limited aspect of it. Um, how are you limited as a filmmaker? I mean, obviously you couldn't have him on film, but how did that actually like help you or did it help you to make the film or was it just a constant challenge? Well, I think in documentary that, um, I always say this, but I think that, you know, the constraints are where the greatest possibilities are. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that's very true in documentary filmmaking. And I think that's why I like documentary so much. It's such a creative challenge. Hmm. So, you know, I think that to me, when he said he didn't want to be on camera, that wasn't in any way a deterrent to me. I thought, oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, that was very, very insightful. Um, information about him, who he is, how he sees things. And if you're trying to make a portrait of someone, yeah. you don't necessarily want to draw their face in a literal sense. You, right. you want to try to capture some little piece of their essence. Mm-hmm. So to me, I found that to be really interesting and a really interesting constraint. I think that, um, so I told him right away, I said, that's okay. I don't need to film you. And um, he, I knew he was comfortable doing audio interviews. So that gave me a lot to work with. Mm-hmm. And then I just thought, well, let me just film all the, people that you see when you're looking through your frame you know Mm. what are the things that matter to you most i spent the first six months just reading everything i could possibly read and um i hadn't read much of his fiction so i read lots of fiction non-fiction poetry and Mm -hmm. um i started there and then just try to get it kind of if i look through all this prolific body of work what are the big themes what are the most important elements and um and it's not just trying to film that and so much of the film feels like you're just wandering his farm. Like you see it from his perspective, this kind of, you know, just sort of scanning the horizon, focusing on a tree. There's so much impressionistic kind of poetry to it. It does feel like you're sort of seeing it from his perspective and like his narrated voice is actually, you know, your voice in that way. It's, it's a really powerful uh, technique, I guess. Oh, well, good. I, I'm glad it works for you. I, you know, it's always a bit of an experiment in mm-hmm. a documentary. You don't have the control. You know, I mean, if you're Michael Moore and you have a script and you go out and you find the people who are going to just illustrate your script, right. that's one way of doing documentary. That's not why I'm interested in it as a medium. I really like to go into something, get totally lost and confused and turn mm-hmm. around and have the subject change me, change my way of seeing and work my way back out. And so... I think that that's my sense of kind of an honest pay way of doing nonfiction film where I'm not, I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to impose myself mm-hmm. until the very, very end when I have to, because at some point hmm. you have to have some kind of structure hmm. to what you're and that's, saying. Is that the but editing process for you? Yeah. Yeah. And I try to do that as little as I can. I try to really hmm. be um, open mm-hmm. to the place. And so with Wendell, I thought, you know, I mean, He's written all these books. You can't possibly summarize Cover it his all. work. Yeah. But no. So what are you trying to get get at? Get at some little bit of it, the essence of it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the big theme and everything is his place, the farmers and his place, mm-hmm. and you know the natural world. And so to me, I wanted to go film, kind of do a yeah a, a documentary portrait of his place, and you know that's what we started doing. So Tanya gave me a list of people to talk to, and I interviewed people. 
and then they would kind of lead me to something else. They would lead me to something else. I think some of the impressionism comes from the limits of what I don't live in Kentucky, mm. and I wasn't able to relocate in, to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I had to go film, and so we were there for two weeks at a time. I knew early on I wanted to film all four seasons, yeah. um, and I wanted nature to really be a presence in the film. And, so and I wanted you to really intimately know a place. Mm-hmm. And so in order to do that, I thought, you know, you re- really have to um, be in the same place, revisit the same landscape over and over again across the four seasons. Yeah. yeah. And so we, we raised, you know, you don't just raise your whole budget and go film everything. You you raise enough money to do your fall shoot. You go and shoot. You're there for two weeks. You shoot everything you can that you think is related. And you come home and you edit that material yeah. Do a teaser. Well, and the seasons and the seasons actually seem to kind of draw the narrative line, don't they? I mean, it yeah. was that was yeah. that was that yeah. your structure, or did that come out in the yeah. in the wash as well? You know yeah, that the, I think there was two, by the yeah, time you hit winter, you're kind of down in the kind of in the most uh, I don't know. He's really um, kind of dwelling on and brooding on a lot of problems it seems like and then by springtime it's yeah, like yeah. new growth and future yeah, yeah I, think that's, I think yeah i think you nailed it I, there's two primary editing like structures in the editing mm-hmm. one is the seasons definitely because i think just to have an intimate sense of place you're in one place you move through the seasons i just my hope was that it would illuminate the place and nature kind of simultaneously the yeah. other structure is if you just look at Wendell's life and you look at the mm-hmm. arc of his life and his thinking and his work. So, you know, if you think of in the in the beginning, you're kind of looking at the so James Baker Hall mm-hmm. took these pictures um, starting the black uh, and white. Wendell was yeah, and They're when we beautiful. got that, that was a treasure trove of material. And so mm-hmm. he started photographing him when he was in college. So I have this um, history where you can kind of see Wendell through the years, starting when he was about. 19 going all the way until recently had those had those photos been available before the film no wow that's great Mm -hmm. yeah they're beautiful and so when we found those i could kind of reconstruct his life a little bit and so in the you know when he was a young man coming up and he was starting to ask these questions and look at the place i try to kind of give you some history at the beginning when you're in the fall and then I, I looked at it as like history, heartbreak, hope is how I thought about it a lot. Because mm. in the 70s, when the agriculture started to change and he wrote The Unsettling America, the yeah. Earl Butts debate, it's where you get his central thesis. Was that but Earl Butts debate? Um, I, I mm-hmm. think there's a book version, but is there any audio of that that exists anywhere? The audio is in the film and we there's no book. There is a newspaper right. article. Um, that we also unearthed, but yeah, we unearthed that audio. We oh, um, so you we, okay? Yeah, we oh, worked. Man. With, um, I would love to hear the whole debate. And, I mean, there's a few minutes in it, yeah. but not. Uh, I would. You never. Yeah. Uh, I guess. Do you hear Earl Butts's half of the yeah. debate? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, I thought yeah. that was just him doing a press conference or something like that. Yeah. No, it's that okay. debate. We didn't That's have cool. any footage from it, so we had to kind of reconstruct it. Yeah. But, you in the you know in the fall you're kind of moving through all of that and then you get into mm-hmm. the winter where it's true where it's like okay there's no hope I mean this 
the arguments about our culture are playing out and it's dismal. But then, yeah, you have a kind of rebirth. You come out in the spring and you start Mm reimagining your own landscape. And I think that follows the trajectory of Wendell's work and where he is personally. If you ask him now, how do you have hope? He'll say, well, hope's a virtue. You've got to have it. And so you just find a way through that. And he'll say, too, he just doesn't have time to dwell on all the negative. He really wants to examples of hope and good work being done and build upon those and his so daughter is the film kind of follow that arc yeah and his daughter's kind of she's carrying on his legacy in her own way right what's what's she up she to she is uh-huh. she's awesome mary berry his daughter mm-hmm. is um she's the executive director of a nonprofit that they founded several years ago called the berry center mm-hmm. it's based in newcastle kentucky and they are doing a lot of different things they're focused a lot on education hmm. they're developing a um a a four-year college degree program for learning about sustainable farming, but it's really aimed at rural kids, hmm. which is wonderful. They are doing a lot of education. They have an agrarian literary league in Henry County, Kentucky. They're also doing economic work. They have started a, um, a meat processing plant. They're helping farmers get grants so that they can, for example, they have a meat processing plant now in Henry County, which the Berry Center has been instrumental in helping have that happen. Fantastic. Grants and other donations. That's so, so that cool. if the farmers, you know, they, 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 they're able to retain a lot more of the profits from their work as opposed to bring their animals into Louisville to slaughter and they lose control and they lose the financial, well, but also just the quality, all of it, you know. It's so interesting it's, that you... There's a lot of work there. Yeah, you could have... archiving... Oh, okay. All of, um, kind All of, of the old work. Wendell Berry and his, his father, who was a lawyer in Henry County, did a lot of work for farmers through the early tobacco program. And then his brother, who was also a lawyer and a politician. So... They're archiving all of that work, so That's they're great. doing all kinds of amazing stuff. Yeah, I mean, just including her her plight and kind of uh, continuing the legacy would be a whole other uh, kind of uh, addendum to the film in and of itself. But I feel like you, oh yeah, oh yeah. But you get enough of the kind of continuity through the farmer um, Steve Smith and just kind of him as a symbol of the the new style of farmer. But um, yes, he's amazing, and he's yeah. Wendell's son-in-law. I don't know. So if that you know, I don't really ever. I, I wanted to ask yeah. you about that, but I didn't want to sound completely clueless. But when I was watching the film, I've seen it three times now, and I the first time there's those black and white photos of him as a kid, right in the early part, or was I just making that connection? Of Wendell as a kid? No, no, it was uh, of Steve Smith. It's, no, I don't have any childhood oh, okay. footage of Steve. Okay. Steve um, grew up, you know, nearby, and they, they kind of knew of each other. But okay. um, he he got to re-know Mary um, okay. through, actually, our film connection. When we were filming, we filmed Steve first. He's one of the first people we interviewed. Yeah, and, I think um, there's a part where he's Indian actually talking on off camera, and then there's a black and white photo of some boy in the fields helping them and it's like to me I'm thinking oh Wendell Berry has a son somewhere and he's gonna appear in the film and then I thought it was Steve but then it, he's a completely different Wendell does have a son his name is Dan Berry and oh, he okay. declined to be in the film but he's a farmer 
in oh. um, nearby. I mean, he's a farmer right there in Henry Lee. Wonderful, neat guy, woodworker. He's, he's married a few kids and works cool. a lot on the Berry homestead and all the Berry farms. So um, he's not yeah, the he hands making the. Camera. He's not the one doing the no. handmade uh, wood. No, old school that's wood. Nick Offerman. Actually, that's oh, Nick. Those Offerman. are beautiful. Um, yeah, they are beautiful. But um, but Steve um, became Wendell's son-in-law in Washington well, when we were making the film. He and Mary were married, <laughs> so he's he's close to Wendell, and, cool. and um, I think very much a beautiful embodiment of kind of that that arc. Oh, absolutely, the arc of Wendell's work. Absolutely, um, it's great. Uh, I know we're coming up on forty minutes, so I don't want to. Okay. I don't want to run you out of time here because I'm sure if you have six boys, there's something that you have to do pretty much right now and all the time. Um, But but I I just uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your work. I mean, I guess the reason I do this podcast is just to kind of learn as much as I can about the process of trying to articulate a lot of these larger implications of you know farming it as as it is now and what it can be and when i saw the film Mm -hmm. i mean it just it speaks on to me on so many levels like that and i think many other viewers as well um i'm so glad you know it's always a bit of a risk like you say i think when you do a documentary it's it's an experiment. That's how I see it, at least. It feels you know? like that. And the film feels like from the yeah. from the opening montage. It just it pulls you into this kind of flood of visual, just uh, mm-hmm. poetry. And so, when you were shooting those, did you have his words in mind, or was that just footage that you kind of were able to cobble together? Yeah. So, um, like my process really is that I do tons and tons and tons and tons of reading and research before I ever shoot anything. Mm -hmm. So I have all those words in my mind. I mean, it's not like I have a specific script, Mm -hmm. but I read everything. I mean, before we shot anything, Mm -hmm. I tried to read or reread everything he's ever written. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. um, I just read and read and read and read and read and read. So, yeah, I have a lot of those ideas and those themes and those words and images in my mind. And you go into the landscape yeah. and you just try to you make try to make those connections. But it's it's in the editing room where you find where things really line up and mm-hmm. make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so we shot over 100 hours of footage over the wow. course of five shoots. Wow. The first summer shoot was when we didn't have much money. So we only shot for three days. We didn't have a real focus. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a great camera. So after we shot the other four se- the other three seasons, we came back and did, redid summer. So I ended up shooting oh, summer twice. Wow. And, um, yeah, and that was over the course of three years because I couldn't shoot. I mean, in an ideal world, I would yeah. have had all my money up front. I would have like relocated there, and I would have just filmed continuously in Henry County, Kentucky for a full year. Sure. But the, my, you know, I didn't have the funding and for that. And you'd have 300 so hours of footage, to, right? Yeah. I think that because of the limitations of my logistics, it ended up having to become more poetic, you know, as opposed to well, that's um, a good thing. A literal <laughs> that works out okay because yeah, I mean, it seems to fit your yeah. your approach and your kind of thought process as a as an artist. Well, I'm glad it worked for you. Like I said, you never really know. I I think what I also too for me, and I said this in a lot of Q and A's, but. Um, like, I really don't want... I feel like we're in a culture now with film where people are 
filmmakers draw a lot of attention to themselves. Mm -hmm. They find themselves to be really interesting and really important. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm more influenced by like some of the classic documentary filmmakers like Frederick Wiseman, Mm -hmm. who you don't really think about him. When you're watching his films, Mm -hmm. you're not constantly thinking about the filmmaker. I think a good documentary is like a transparent lens onto something. Mm -hmm. So obviously my film stuff is a lot more emotional, as my husband would say, more feminine. Mm -hmm. But um, but I still really am more interested in creating a space for the viewer to experience Mm -hmm. something he or she would otherwise not experience. As opposed to making a film that you're thinking about the film the whole time. You know what I'm saying? I do Like, I really want it to be more of of a space Mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, a statement or an agenda. I want to just create a kind of sensory experience that then you personally have your own intimate connections to the material. You form your own Mm -hmm. connections, your own um, meaning from that. And Mm -hmm. I just think that's that's a more honest way to, to, to work in this medium. For me, at least. It is. And still, your point is made. I mean, I'm, I'm a biased viewer, but I would, you know, the point that I get from the film is there is a heart and soul to old school agrarian, you know, agro ecological, small peasant style farms. And mm-hmm. uh, you kind of paint that picture and it provide, like you said, I, I, I get this space to sort of just live in it you know, and have my Good. own fantasies of having a few acres and not, you know, being in the city and all that. Um, but I think you mentioned earlier, you don't have a, an agenda or a, you know, a kind of point to well, make, but it's there. <laughs> I do have a, no, no, I do have a point to make. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I definitely have a point to make. It's just that I try to hold that back as long as possible. Yeah. It's, it's and restraining. To try to create that's a space it. That's open enough yeah. that someone can connect in their own personal ways as opposed to so if A even B, if B even C, if C even D, now go do this. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. And a lot really, of documentary feels like that, own. right? Mm-hmm. It does. Very literal. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. No, I, I think that you know, I've, I've been asked this so many times like uh, objectivity versus subjectivity and yeah. the whole world of documentary is always exploring those themes and I always kind of think about it like well, there's no objectivity in, in yeah. human experience. I mean, everything's subjective. It's a matter of what is your subjective. That's the frame that he was and, talking about, right? Yeah, that he looks exactly. Out. I mean, it's yeah. And I, I love Wendell Berry. I think mm-hmm. he's a really important writer and an important voice. So that's kind of where I take my stand. You know, that's great. Is that I'm making a film about him because I think he's a really important writer. That's um, great. But I don't want to push much more onto you, you know, than translating and kind of bringing his world to you. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't. It's very, very, it's a light, it's a light, light touch. And it's a beautiful thing. So you're not being hammered with ugly imagery of, you know, the doom and gloom of the industrial agricultural right. machine. We get enough of that, right? We get we plenty get of that of just that. driving down the highway, yeah. right? We live in that world. I so. want to film. Like if, I don't really like film, to be honest. I don't watch film very much. <laughs> I, I don't really <laughs> like screens I, I'd much rather be outside it's hilarious I think that um, everyone's staring at a screen so yeah. I kind of wanted to put something in a screen I called it the anti-screen screen like can you make a film that makes people want to turn the TV off <laughs> and go outside hilarious. or go read a book to their son you yeah. Know? Like, yeah how can you make a film that makes you want to turn away from film oh man itself? I just and, went to see yeah. in the theater um, 
the new posthumous film by the um, uh, Iranian director. Mm. Oh my God. Mm. I'll, I'm going to, yeah. I would butcher his name if I even tried to say it, if I could remember it. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway, the film, he's, he's made a lot of experimental documentary and film, but I guess, so this film was just uh, still frames of, it's kind of interpretations of classic art um, paintings and photography. Oh wow! Of nature. Is it so, Abbas Karasami, maybe? Yes, um, that's it. That's totally yeah, right. Absolutely. Oh, cool. So, do you know about this film? It's kind of no. I think you would. I think you would out. love it because it's just uh, maybe an hour and a half, not quite two hours of. Oh, it's called uh, Twenty Four Frames, I think, or Forty Two oh, Frames. Cool. So every frame okay. is just on the screen. And you're looking mm-hmm. at it, and there's no music, and there, and then he kind of manipulates the the artwork and makes it animated and change, and there's you know ambient mm. audio. It's amazing, but it was that feeling of like I kept having this itch to like do something else, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm so yeah. glad I saw it in the theater because I didn't have that. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, right. And the other film that I feel like your movie. Um, really, uh, kind of parallels or like fits in the same place to me is this film that I keep telling people about, and I don't know if anybody has really seen it. It's called Cousin Jules. Do you know that film? Mm, no. It's a French film from maybe the seventies, and mm-hmm. this filmmaker documents his cousin Jules who's like this elderly farmer with his wife and they're doing mm. he's a oh no he's a blacksmith so he's doing blacksmithing and they mm-hmm. fetch water from a well and they do everything um you know pre-industrial revolution but mm-hmm. it, there's no narrative it's just mm-hmm. footage of them verite. Do, yeah that's yeah. right cinema verite right yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's the term. Yeah. Right? So it's like ethnographic film, you know. That's oh, it's what beautiful. I got in. Yeah, it's really refreshing. Oh man, yeah. Locha Drome is my favorite gypsy documentarian uh, documentary work. If you, it's just mm-hmm. just the music and the gypsies traveling from one place. That's amazing. But um, mm. yeah, so uh, that's cool. So. I'm, yeah. I'm geeking out on things that I don't really know how to talk about right now, but you're the no, expert no, on all I that. I appreciate the connections. No, yeah. I'm not an expert, but um, yeah. no, that's that's cool. Well, I'm yeah. so glad that the film resonated for you. That means a yeah. lot. It's always very encouraging to hear. Well, great. And uh, Laura, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And I hope you had a good walk. You and bet. I hope your baby's still I did. asleep. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's just waking up. That's so perfect timing. Good. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much, Joe, for your interest and your just kind words. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, and I'll just keep following and see what you're working on next. I'm sure there's something. I'm, hopefully, you're able to squeeze in some time in between uh, any number of millions <laughs> yeah. of tasks with kid kid rearing. Well, I'm working on something about, yeah, I'm working on something that's a little more personal. Like, I'm working on something about raising boys. Nice. Um, in a world that's very unfriendly to little boys, yes. I think. It's like oh my God. in the vein of 
Last Child in the Woods. Um, oh yeah, Richard Lewis. He's my man. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on something in that in that vein. Oh, so, I can't um, wait. Well, as a dad uh, yeah. of a toddler living in that, <laughs> struggling in that exactly. world too, I can't wait. I know you completely. That's the thing is that you know you kind of try, constantly trying to think about what are you going to work on, and I kind yeah. of came back around to it. It's like you know I'm trying to create wholeness in my own life where my work and my life go together. And then I also think sometimes you just have to write what you know. And yeah. I don't, I'm not really interested in, you know, being come part of the kind of Instagram culture where we think our own lives are so important. But right, right. how can I use this unique experience of raising six boys and, yeah. and help other people and or, or, or help me be a better mom in the That's process? Great. And I started reading a lot of books about, you know, the, nurturing the nature child connection because it's so lacking in our world. Yes. And that got me into education and Yes. examining that and then that's kind of brought me back around to boys and in an age where you know defending the young white male is about as politically incorrect as you could do and oh, you've yeah. got this gun violence and boys academic rates plummeting there's something there and so i'm oh, i'm working man. on that it's in development right now but um i've already got nick offerman on board with it and we're Wonderful. starting to shoot a little bit so I, you know hopefully it won't take 10 years but Ooh, i feel like that could be a whole other hour-long conversation because you really just triggered a yeah. whole lot of interests that i have kind of tangentially from farming but um uh-huh. that's that's amazing and it's with, heavy. With all, it's, it's heavy. Right? It's heavy because you touched on mm-hmm. all of the tragedy that's going on in the world it, locally here right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is, perp- is perpetrated by young adolescent to teenage to 20 something boys, men. Boys, yes. And yes. it is yes. such a, it is such a, a pit right now, a kind of missing, um, it's a it's a it's a missing part to the cultural equation, you know, and it uh, is. It is. It's astonishing just how much it, it is. It is. Once you really start digging into it, and you, you know, not that girls aren't going from. through their own <laughs> very real problems, oh, yeah. of course, but yeah. but yeah, with six yeah. boys, you you're you're studying the arc of development. I am. I am. <laughs> deeply, and everyone just feels so sorry for me everywhere I go. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Six boys. Like, oh. you know, boys used to be an asset. And right. after being out on all these farms and these farm yeah. kids, you start realizing, well, we live in a world that's obsessed with order. Yeah. Where we have no connection to the natural world. You can't really have good and evil in stories because right. that's too violent. Yeah. And then you have boys who are supposed to sit still all day, yeah. which they can't do. Nope. And if they're bad, they get recess taken away, which makes things worse. And then on top of that, no one wants to deal with their boys, so they stick them in front of phones and iPads and video games, which is the worst possible thing you could do. I mean, I read the other day that... I see it everywhere. I read the other day that it's normal for kids to have six to eight hours of screen time a day, and I... And it wasn't even a criticism of it. It was just like, this is the norm, and we accept it, and I just could not... I could not accept it or believe it, you know? Oh, it's horrible. And I think it has a particularly bad effect on boys. I really think that boys, the way their brains are wired... They, they get particularly addicted and yeah. stuff. girls have their own issues that my, I hear it's a lot about social media and stuff, but I don't, I don't know anything about that since I have boys, but and we're, it's just a word. And I, I, it's really scary. You know, it's scary. And people say, where's all this gun violence coming from? And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, let's because examine kind of male culture. Well, and that's in a loving way, not go, in like a criminalizing yeah. way. You know? Right, right, right. And reach out and say, what do you need? What are the needs that you have yeah. as a as a creature? Because since we're talking about yeah. Wendell Berry, yeah. I feel like one of the powers of Wendell is that his 
uh, perspective is deep time. You know, he's not looking at just green culture and media culture. He's looking at deep time ecological culture. And back in his day, you'd have six boys and you'd have a farm out your back window. So that's what they did. And (laughs) they they have that kind of energy within them. Totally. They're just like, I always feel like my boys in suburban America are like wild animals in a cage, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. When are you going to like say, it's not the boys, it's our culture, it's our system, you know? Uh, That's where we need to get to. Yeah, absolutely. Right, Archie? Stop making them try to fit into a hole. Just change the hole, right? Learn from them. Learn from them, you know? That's kind of my thinking, but... Yeah, well, to be continued then. To be continued, because that, that's a whole other uh, conversation. And yeah. I, I really appreciate your time again, Laura. And um, Likewise, Joe. And okay. I'll, with I'll your work. share this far and wide. And I, I hope that the film continues to resonate with so many people, because I just love it. And uh, thank, thank you. thanks for your work. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Take care. All Stay right. in touch. Okay, bye-bye. Okay. All right, bye. Well, thanks for listening. I, for one, cannot wait to um, see what Laura Dunn comes up with next, um, especially as it concerns uh, the difficulties that uh, boys have growing up in our crazy, violent culture. And uh, she certainly seems like she's the expert on it, raising six of them herself. Um, So at any rate, thanks for listening, and please share this episode with anyone who you think might like it. You can find Farm On the Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Uh, Contact me on Twitter at Farm On Dharma. That's Farm On D-H-A-R-M-A. Or email me at dharmaonthefarm at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, follow the sun and farm on.